traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. It's Oscar night in Hollywood. This is the Pantages Theater. The Oscars are the biggest night of the year for Hollywood. But in 1960, the celebration was overshadowed. A month before the award ceremony, actors had walked off sets to join television and film writers who had already taken to the picket lines. It was the first time that both groups had gone on strike at once. The comedian Bob Hope, who hosted the awards that year, made light of the tension between writers and actors and the studios. In spite of it all, it's a wonderful country, isn't it? Where else can a man walk off a job and refuse to get out of his swimming pool unless they improve working conditions? <laughs> the rise of television was disrupting the entertainment business, as filmmakers increasingly made money when movies were licensed to be shown on TV. Actors and writers wanted their cut. They wanted royalties, or residuals as Hollywood calls them. Spearheading negotiations with the studios was the president of the Screen Actors Guild, Ronald Reagan. I believe that in a spirit of goodwill and fair negotiations, we are now on our way to a settlement of what has been a very regrettable and tragic affair. After six weeks, the studios caved, agreeing to pay royalties for films produced from 1960 onwards, although writers remained on the picket lines for another two months. Today, we are watching a rerun. Actors and writers have once again joined together to picket outside Hollywood's biggest studios. And once again, the disruption caused by technology is at the heart of the dispute. This time, it is streaming residuals that are an issue, as well as the threat of artificial intelligence. How will AI change the economics of Hollywood? And what will it take to get creatives off the picket lines? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. In Washington, D.C., I'm Alice Fulwood. In London, I'm Mike Bird. And in today's show, why actors in Hollywood have swapped delivering their lines for the picket lines. First, we hear from those on strike in Hollywood. Netflix has never released any data. And when you do that, it's difficult to argue. We know that they're doing great. They know that they're doing great. They refuse to release numbers. Then we get the business perspective. They have plenty of stinkers. Netflix shareholders would be happier because they'd be critical of management decisions to make bad stuff. Finally, we hear from one of the best known names in animation about how AI will transform the industry. There will be full-feature, Hollywood-quality fan-fiction versions of movies, which are very compelling. Mike, hello. Hi, Alice. Are you enjoying your time in London, manning the fort while Tom is away? Yeah, it was a balmy 16 degrees Celsius yesterday, so it's a classic British summer. 
I'm not only stealing his space in the Money Talks Global Order, but I'm actually stealing his desk as well, which is conspicuously, some would say, almost suspiciously clean. More like a consultant's desk than a journalist's desk, I'd say. I think the first time I met Tom, I actually was accidentally sitting at his desk, which was so clean that I assumed it was unused. So yeah, I have experienced the uh, meticulous tidiness of Tom's desk and pretty nice as a guest, I must say. But uh, moving on to the content of this week's episode, are you Team Barbie or Team Oppenheimer? I must admit, I haven't seen either yet. I do want to get the IMAX for Oppenheimer to see whether Chris Nolan's well-known commitment to not using CGI means he actually had Killian Murphy set off a real nuclear device during the filming. What about you? I've actually just signed up for a Barbie-themed tennis night at my local courts. So uh, take a guess. Take a guess which movie uh, I'm more into. I feel like, have we picked up some sort of sponsorship by which we mention tennis in every episode? <laughs> I feel like this is like the fourth episode in a row. You'll never hear the end of it now. I like tennis. Well, you won't shut up about tennis and the rest of the world won't shut up about Barbie and Oppenheimer. Yes, I agree. It's basically been impossible to open any social media app or do anything without coming across some sort of Barbenheimer meme or promotion of one of the movies. But they actually could be the last films that we will be hearing about for a while, because as of July 13th, when the Screen Actors Guild of America joined the Writers Guild of America on the picket lines, there will be no writing, filming, casting, or even promotion of movies or television shows. So the actors actually walked out of the premiere of Oppenheimer in London and shooting for yet another Mission Impossible movie and Deadpool 3 and other movies have been halted. Well, honestly, after uh, what I think is seven Mission Impossible movies, I'm starting to feel like these missions aren't actually impossible at all. Um, I'm not sure personally whether a delay before Mission Impossible's like eight through 12 or whatever is going to kill me. Are you feeling the effects yet? I haven't been forced to watch too many reruns yet, but I was actually in Los Angeles quite recently and even beyond the chronic traffic, it does have the sense of a city somewhat at a standstill. I was actually there to visit my sister who's living there for a couple of months and we drove past the picket lines outside various studios. Uh, she's staying in this big building where a handful of Hollywood editors or producers live and they're all very bored, I must say. What a terrible life to be without professional responsibilities in one of the most beautiful parts of the world. Um, so what happens next? Well, the person who actually went and did some real shoe leather reporting on this for us is The Economist's West Coast correspondent, Erin Braun, who went down to the picket lines outside of Netflix's offices in L.A. If you were looking at recent box office returns alone you would think that the U.S. movie industry was in a pretty good place. Are you guys ready? We are ready. Yes. For Barbenheimer, because today is the day. Two the two biggest films of the year, Barbie and Oppenheimer, have just been released on the same weekend amid wall-to-wall -wall media coverage. And these two films could not be more different, but what they do have in common is amazing reviews and massive pre-release hype. It is the best day ever. So is yesterday, and so is tomorrow, and every day from now until forever. Warner Brothers Barbie raked in about $155 million during its first three days in theaters. That's the highest opening of 2023. You are the man who gave them the power to destroy themselves. And the world is not prepared. Universal's Oppenheimer made an estimated $80.5 million. 
It's expected to be the highest grossing weekend of the year for two reasons. First, these two releases were highly anticipated blockbusters with superstar casts and directors. Second, because distinctly dark times lie ahead. Hollywood screenwriters have been on strike since May, and film and TV sets remain quiet as an actor's strike enters its second week. Releases in the near future will struggle to generate any buzz at all, with starring actors barred from promoting them. This is something that is so important for my past self, my present career, and the future of all performers as a community. And if we don't stand up for what we need, we're going to be walked all over. Vanessa Chester is a disgruntled actor. I'm speaking with her on the picket line outside of Netflix's corporate offices in Hollywood. There are just so many changes that are happening in this industry. And the way that I look at it is the labor variable, which is the performers and the creatives, they're trying to diminish us. Her union, SAG-AFTRA, has around 160,000 members, including actors from film and TV shows, as well as video game performers, radio presenters, models, and YouTube influencers. The actors are on strike over the way tech is changing their industry. First on their list of grievances, streaming, and the money that actors earn from it. Residuals are what actors and writers make each time a film or episode they worked on is aired. The residuals for streaming were originally set quite low compared to, say, when a show is aired on cable TV. But streaming has become a dominant way that people watch film and TV. The Actors' Union wants residuals to reflect that. For Vanessa, who's been acting since she was three years old, the income she gets from these royalties is no longer enough to live on. When I think about the residuals that I used to get as a child compared to now, it's not comparable, it's not sustainable, and we're about to be eradicated. The middle-class actor, which is what you're seeing right here, is about to be gone, and I think it's... SAG after negotiators asked that actors be paid partly based on viewership numbers on streaming services. But the studios, which include streamers like Netflix and Amazon, alongside Disney, aren't willing to share that information. This is a huge issue for actors like Graceling Kung, who I also chatted with on the picket line. This is why I felt it was important to come to Netflix. Netflix has never released any data, and they just refuse to. And when you do that, it's difficult to argue. We know that they're doing great. They know that they're doing great. They refuse to <laughs> release numbers. So you're kind of the second big complaint that actors have is with the use of AI. They want protections over who owns the rights to digital reproductions of an actor's likeness. Union leadership explained their concerns in a recent press conference. They proposed that our background performers should be able to be scanned, get paid for one day's pay, and their company should own that scan, their image, their likeness, and should be able to use it for the rest of eternity in any project they want with no consent and no compensation. So if you think that's a groundbreaking proposal, I suggest you think again. If you're a studio, owning an actor's likeness means saving a lot of money in production by removing people from the equation. Rather than paying for 50 actors to populate the background of a scene, you can add them using a computer instead. This poses an existential threat to mid-level and background actors. 
The Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, better known as the AMPTP, is the organization that represents all of the big studios. They have released a statement to say that studios could not use a digital replica of a performer without their consent. No digital alteration that would change the nature of an actor's performance in a role is allowed without informing the performer of the intended alteration and securing the performer's consent. Rules require producers to hire up to a specified number of background actors under the SAG after a contract per day. Those rules remain in effect. The studios say SAG-AFTRA is distorting the facts to garner support for the work stoppages that have ground the industry to a halt in America and abroad. Productions like the film version of the musical Wicked, a remake of Beetlejuice, the third installment of Marvel's Deadpool franchise, and the follow-up to the movie Gladiator have all been stalled, and some releases have been pushed back. The promotional ban means that talk shows in America and around the world will be light on movie and TV stars. Autumn film festivals like Venice, Telluride, and Toronto will go without stars on the red carpet. There's no end to the strike in sight. The actors and studios remain really far apart on big issues, and neither has moved to restart negotiations. What's at stake in the Hollywood strikes is a question that workers are asking across almost all industries today. Are people replaceable? Now, that is the picture on the ground, but to understand the background to the strikes and what might bring them to an end, I wanted to speak to Michael Pachter. He's an analyst covering the movie and entertainment sectors at Wedbush Securities and he has been following the industry for more than two decades. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Alice. Proud and honoured to be here. Could we just start with why you think these two major Hollywood unions, so the Writers Guild and the Screen Actors Guild, have both gone on strike? Why is this happening now? Oh, I mean, the, the landscape has changed. So the number of scripted shows has gone up. The number of scripted films has gone down. The writers are probably more important than they've ever been. And what we're seeing is a proliferation of more shows with fewer episodes. So the lower end writers just aren't making a living. The same is true of the actors. There's just not enough episodes for people to write for or act in. And then that content once produced is used in streaming, which typically doesn't report metrics. So, you know, if you're in a popular commercial broadcast show, everybody publishes how many viewers because it's used to generate higher advertising rates. If you star or write a film, everybody knows what box office is. So it's very obvious how much money they make. But if you star or write a show for Netflix, nobody has any idea how many eyeballs actually viewed your work. So I think the key sticking point right now is finding a way to measure the residual value of the content. Netflix has kind of dug its heels in and doesn't want to share that information. But that's the biggest sticking point. And so what kind of deal, I guess, for actors and writers do you think would cause them to settle? You know, what kind of outcome could they get that would encourage them to go back to work? I think that the low-hanging fruit, the easy solution is to raise the minimum. So raise the scale that's pretty easy for everybody to do. And the media companies can manage the content that they produce 
So instead of producing 500 shows, you know, they can produce 400 shows. And who would notice? One would think that we should charge the media companies with being intelligent about what they choose to produce. And they should be able to stop producing crap. You know, so if they kind of cut out the bad stuff, then I think that no one's going to notice that they didn't produce a bad show. The harder point to win is measuring streaming views and reporting it. You know, it's a famously kept secret at Netflix. And in fairness to them, I understand why they don't want to share what works and what doesn't work with their competitors. But I frankly think that the driving force behind their reticence to share is their fear of embarrassment. I think that they have plenty of stinkers and they don't want people to know how bad some of their content is. I actually think Netflix would benefit. Netflix shareholders would be happier because they'd be critical of management decisions to make bad stuff. And I think shareholders should get fed up with Netflix not reporting this stuff. One of the biggest sticking points is about the streaming data and Netflix. Could we talk a bit about how the strike is going to impact companies differently. So, you know, is Netflix going to be the most affected or who's really going to suffer now that the actors and writers are on strike? I mean, relative to its overall spend, Netflix is by far the least affected. They produce about 50% of their total content and they license the other 50%. Of the 50 that they produce at most 20 percentage points of their spend, are domestically produced, so subject to the strike produced in the U.S. They're pretty much going to have 80% of their content. And the second order, all streaming companies are less impacted than all commercial broadcast networks because the streaming companies don't typically deliver content on a schedule. The commercial broadcast guys are hit because their season begins in September. And unless they settle tomorrow, it's not going to happen. So they hurt really badly. Their second order impact is that the more frequent a television program airs, the more content they need. So the daily show and shows like The Tonight Show, those can't be scripted. Now, those guys are running old catalog content as well. But over time, that alienates the consumer. Um, And then the final order impact, and all the television networks are owned by movie studios, movies have a serious problem. Because the actors will not cross the picket line. They're actually on the picket line. So if Netflix is sort of the least affected by this strike, but also the biggest sticking point, that indicates, I guess, that it could go on for a very long time before they cave on any of the demands, right? Or uh, why would they bother to negotiate, I guess, if they're sort of the least affected? They should settle. And the reason they should settle is whatever it costs them to settle, it costs everybody else more. So if they settle and if they're generous with the actors and writers, they're going to force Disney and Peacock and Paramount to settle, Comcast, to settle and be generous with the actors and the writers. I think Netflix would accelerate the demise of its competition if it signed an expensive contract because everybody else who are currently losing money, all of them except HBO, are losing money would lose more money. So that would be great. (laughs) And then Netflix would be viewed as the darling, as the most friendly company to actors and writers. And if they were viewed as the most friendly, they would compete favorably for those people's services in future projects. So I really, truly believe that the guys who run Netflix are smart enough to figure this out. 
but I hope they listen to this podcast so that they follow the advice. And unfortunately, Netflix is ruled by the emperor, Reed Hastings, who occasionally walks out naked and everybody tells him how great his new clothes look. So unfortunately, if Reed doesn't think this is his idea, they're unlikely to follow my advice. Yeah, well, I hope the uh, Netflix execs are listening too. Uh, They heard it here first. Could we turn to AI now and what impact you think this will have? Obviously, it's become an additional sticking point in these negotiations. So how immediate is the threat of AI to actors and to writers? It's not an immediate threat to writers because it's really hard to get AI to do anything unless the AI can scan source material and emulate or copy it. If you were to ask AI to write an original script, just an original thought, it's going to be boring. So I'm not worried about that for the writers at all. I think the writers are being stupid worrying about it. The actors, completely different story. So the studios or the AMPTP, the production guild, has proposed to actors that an actor would come in and work for a single day and have their body scanned, wear a body suit, and have their face imaged. And then the project could use that actor AI generated throughout the film for one day of pay and no residuals. Now, the Actors Guild, Screen Actors Guild, it initially reported that as saying that likeness would be used forever in perpetuity for any project. And the AMPTP said, no, 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 we're not hogs, we're merely pigs, and we only want it one project at a time. Well, that's a non-starter. That's just not fair. If they want to make up animated characters, go ahead. But if they want to base it on somebody's likeness, they better pay for it. You know, there's plenty of opportunity for AI to lower production costs. I think the simple example, if you tell AI, create a never-ending number of trees so it looks like we're actually driving from LA to San Francisco or something, they can do that. AI can absolutely do that. That's fine. That's a good use for it. That will cut production costs. So it sounds like the impact of AI might be more on the visual effects side and on the sort of editing side of things. 100%. And, you know, the beauty of technology is that it actually benefits us all. So we're going to get better product. And yes, illustrators are going to be in less demand. But high-end illustrators have to create these computer images. And we're going to get better content for less money. So I think that's fine. I don't feel sorry for anybody who's replaced by machines if it's more productive and drives down the cost of all goods and services to all people. I think that AI is going to end up benefiting the industry immensely. And projects are going to get bigger. Every movie is going to look like Avatar. And that's okay. I mean, that's kind of cool. Michael, that was tremendous fun. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much for joining the show. As I said, it was my pleasure and I am honored that you thought of me. Thank you very, very much. So, Mike, my personal highlight from this interview was when Michael pointed out that Netflix makes some real stinkers. He probably doesn't have a point there. And more seriously, I thought the point he made about the studio's various exposures and incentives was very enlightening. So, you know, the logic he explained about why he thinks Netflix should settle sounded pretty good to me. You know, they could be the good guys and shaft their competitors all at once. The guys at Netflix really should be listening to this show and they should take his advice. 
at the same time, it makes total sense that Bob Iger, the boss of Disney, is so averse to changing the way things work. It will cost him and Disney the most, it seems. Yeah, I've seen enough Netflix Christmas films to know that there are some absolute howlers in the stack there by quality, not necessarily by audience. I found the points made there about Netflix being best off here really interesting as well. And I think that that is obviously in part down to its really, really significant foreign exposure that Netflix now has and Disney, for example, doesn't have as big a share of. You can see that going on in Korea Netflix is essentially pursuing what if it was a manufacturer 30 years ago, we would have called an outsourcing strategy. It's a country with uh, lower labor costs. It's not unionized in the same way. And crucially, you've had this sort of revolution in the fact that it's not just Koreans watching or even just people in Asia watching. If you can get Americans to watch a Korean show, then you can just sort of circumvent all of this and you're away to the races. You're like Toyota in 1968, you know, selling cars to Americans for the first time. You know, this could be a, a great business thing that you're quite right. The other companies just can't really mimic. Well, speaking of controversial and interesting uh, business strategies, this week I am so looking forward to reading a brilliant long read on Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, which was written by Henry Trix, our resident Schumpeter columnist. He actually went to spend some time with Larry on his farm in upstate New York, where they talked about the pivot that BlackRock had made to ESG and environmental concerns and talked about basically how harrowing the backlash against that movement has been for Larry Fink and and BlackRock. And it's an absolutely gripping piece. I really hope you read it. You can read that piece and more for absolutely nothing by going to economist.com forward slash podcast offer for a free 30-day digital subscription. And that is if you are not already a subscriber. After the break, we will hear from the boss of one of America's best-known AI movie companies about whether actors should be worried about being replaced by technology and how that tech will change movie making. Hello, Tom. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. The reason we wanted to speak to you today is because the use of AI in cinema has been in the news an awful lot recently with actors and writers concerned that um, the use of this technology could mean that there might be less work for them in the future. But before we get into all of that, could you just tell us a little bit about all of the tools that you make? 
What we specialize in doing is creating photorealistic AI generated content and that may extend to voice and audio in the sense of it sounds and looks exactly like something shot with a camera in the real world. That's interesting. It's very, very difficult to do. So we generate video, audio, anything that you can see and consume. So that may be face replacement, maybe replacing an entire body. We are a long way away, I think, with AI from creating the genius of human performance by replacing human performance. But there are certain things like changing costumes, changing faces, creating backgrounds, foregrounds, creating content from scratch where everything inside the frame, it looks realistic, but it was all generated by AI. These are all some of the things that we work on. I was playing around a bit on your website and looking at some of the things that you've done. And for instance, it's easy to see how this kind of photorealistic application could apply to, say, putting Tom Cruise's face on a stunt double, say, if he used that. Or perhaps I saw some of the powerful aging technology you use. So being able to see a character at different stages in their life. Could you just explain, you know, things that people currently have to do using extensive visual processes, how you use AI to make those things possible? Yes, I think that one of the things that say generative AI, neural nets, some of the computational machines, the algorithms which power this type of AI generated content can achieve with high accuracy are things like natural movement, connecting facial movement with speech in a way that looks realistic to us and kind of crosses beyond the uncanny valley. So, you know, everybody is familiar with CGI and VFX that looks a little bit plasticky or it doesn't kind of look real. That is an experience like that we have as humans when we look at somebody's face because we are amazing machines at understanding what's real and what is fake, especially in human expressions. We spend our lives training on the task of understanding authenticity in human performance and interaction. And so when you see something that's not right and it's generated by VFX, you know, it's weird. It makes you uncomfortable. And the AI can create versions of people's faces and movement and performance and their body and their speech, which we believe are real. It crosses that threshold. So one of the concerns that some actors have raised in this recent strikes and labour action is that they have this concern about doing one day's work and they're like this being captured and then that being used with technology in perpetuity. And it sounds like you would like guardrails that makes that kind of risk minimised or are they right to be worried about that? I think that, you know, the right human emotion to feel is worry when there is this concept of somebody being able to create a version of you saying or doing something without your direct involvement or informed consent. That is fundamentally worrying whether it is one of the highest paid actors in the world or somebody who works as an extra. What's interesting to me is that creating digital versions of humans in films is something that's happened for a long time. People in the backgrounds of shots and things like this. So what I think is important about that specific use case, the idea that, say, someone who plays a minor role or someone who is an extra or someone who features in the background of film could have their data shot on one day and then have versions of them created without their consent in the future, I think that that shouldn't happen. But I think also that it is very, very easy to create systems contractually and otherwise to compensate and inform those people where their likeness is recreated in film in the future. And it's easy to track those things. So it sounds like you do empathise with the concerns that some actors have. In general, 
what do you make of the idea that there might be less work for people in the movie industry if some of these AI tools take off? You know, how do you think the impact will be on the total involvement of humans in the future? There will be two things which happen. One, there may be fewer people required physically for long periods of time on certain projects. But I hope that those people will still be compensated and recognized for their contribution, even if their contribution is an AI version of them. But then as projects have reduced budgets per project, I think that there's going to be more projects. So interestingly, you might have a proliferation of projects where you know they are smaller footprint per project. I think what will happen when the cost of creating content and the barriers to entry of creating really interesting, compelling content that audiences want to view. I think what will happen when that cost comes down is that we'll have more content and more ability for storytellers to tell more diverse stories for smaller and smaller audiences. I guess I won't have to watch so many Avengers movies in the future then. I'll be able to watch something else that I'm more interested in maybe. Or you'll be able to watch thousands of Avenger movies. <laughs> it's not really crazy to believe that with the advent of tools which are more accessible to fans, there will be full feature Hollywood quality fan fiction versions of movies which are very compelling, maybe very, very specifically niche. And so if you are an Avengers fan, you may be able to indulge yourself near 24-7. Sounds great. Thank you so much, Tom, for joining the show. It's been really interesting uh, talking about all of the things this might make possible. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. So, Mike, what do you make of what you've heard today? So I think there's, I guess, two issues at stake here when it comes to AI, particularly sort of replacing background actors or other people in films. There's the intellectual property, who owns your image, reasonable things where the idea of AI-generated version of you doing something you don't like or your image being improperly used or used when you haven't given permission or whatever. That's all reasonable and that seems like the sort of stuff that is going to crop up with this new technology. And then on the other side, there's the standard labor-saving technology stuff that we could discuss about, like any technology that's existed for the last several hundreds of years. And that's where it becomes somewhat less sympathetic to me in the sense that you know, think about a film set and how much that must have changed in the last 50 years. You know, unless you're in a Christopher Nolan film, then, you know, someone's blowing up a train and it's coming off the tracks. That's probably done by a bunch of guys in a studio rather than by a guy rigging the explosives to the train. And, you know, the guy rigging the explosives to the train lost his job and he's not employable anymore, again, other than by Christopher Nolan. But there's all sorts of jobs that film studios do have now. And, you know, if you work in visual effects or something like that, there's lots more jobs than there used to be. So I think there's a sort of balance of these things. I struggle with the sort of labor saving side of it. That's just the reality here. The water is going to go through the cracks. It is pushing against the tides of history to try and block it. Whereas, as I say, the genuine image rights concerns are, I think, much more reasonable. Yeah, it's interesting to think about all of the ways in which artificial intelligence could change the kinds of movies that we see. So if it becomes essentially trivial to do these very cool graphics effects or to put, you know, Tom Cruise's face on his stunt double, the quality of movies will go up enormously. If it also becomes possible to do things like from your home computer create some sort of silly fan fiction movie as Tom Graham was saying it's possible it strikes me that that's an enormously powerful tool for creativity now 
you know, thousands of Avenger movies in a row sounds like some kind of waking nightmare for me. But uh, I'm sure there are people out there listening who would be thrilled by that reality. And so in general, I am very excited to see the impact that AI will have on this industry, while at the same time feeling extremely put off by the idea that companies might use this to use people's likeness in ways that they don't agree to or consent to. I can absolutely see why that would be a controversial sticking point and it's something I absolutely do not think that actors should cave about. In terms of the other reason that people are striking, which is the streaming residuals, it's been very interesting to think through all the different strategies that different studios and companies might take. You know, the rhetoric we've heard from the studio so far has been that they absolutely are not going to negotiate with the writers. Now that the actors have joined in, the pressure has really been turned up on studios to do something. And I'm fascinated to see how that will play out because I do think, as Michael explained, there are sort of lots of different strategies and incentives on different businesses. And it will be fascinating to see where the negotiations land. I think it's going to be a really fascinating time to watch what is happening in Hollywood, even if we are not getting to watch the things that Hollywood is producing while the strikes carry on. But we should probably pivot now to our stats of the week. So, Mike, what have you got for me? So my stat of the week was actually hugely surprising to me. I was not aware that it was quite the way it is. Uh, The stat is 21,750,358 to be specific. It's down, that's from last year, it's down 2,654,425. And that is the number of people who hold passports in Japan. Now, if you're not familiar with the population of Japan, it's well over 100 million. And as a result, that's only about 17.5% of Japanese people who have passports. People often talk about Americans not traveling very much and, and a lot of Americans not having passports. But about twice as many Americans have passports proportionally, almost exactly twice as many, in fact. I was pretty impressed with that. It seems like an incredibly low number of people. But there you go. Sorry, it's down 2.6 million over what time period? That was since the previous year. It seems to be falling very rapidly. I don't know whether this is people aging out or pre-COVID passport something, something renewal, but it it goes down every year. And the share goes down every year as well. Obviously, Japan has a shrinking population, but this is a falling percentage as well. I mean, there is the point. Why would you want to leave? If you live in Japan, I would just stay. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you went to visit Japan very recently. I'm going to visit Japan imminently. So we clearly understand the appeal of Japan. And uh, maybe they'd never get rid of us if we actually got to live there. I am going to cheat a bit this week and say some sort of infinite number of minutes, which is the time I have spent on YouTube watching tractor sports (laughs) since last week's episode. (laughs) Uh, We have been truly... uh, Thank you to everyone who wrote in to uh, tell us of many tractor sports in many different parts of the world that we should watch. I have since indulged in watching many of these videos. And um, yeah, tractor sports do exist. I can't say they're the most exciting sport I've ever watched, but apparently Ooh. a lot of people like them. Honestly, I really liked the look of them. And I, <laughs> I think it was it's the fact that you see them all around the world. I'm sorry to anyone that, that we didn't reply to, but we really were inundated with messages about tractor sports. From Europe, from the US, I saw a lot of extremely popular videos from Punjab. Yeah, I'm keen. The three-hour tractor sports episode is going to happen. I'm going to make it happen. 
We'll use AI to create endless tractor sports episodes of Money Talks that people can listen to on repeat for the rest of their days. And I think with that, all that is left to do is to say thank you to Michael Pachter and Tom Graham. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer is Wei Dong Lin. And the executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Alice Fullwood. I'm Mike Bird. And this is The Economist. Is globalization dead or can free trade be revived? Register now for Economist Impact's Global Trade and Supply Chain Summit on September 19th and 20th in Dubai. You'll learn how to improve supply chain visibility and resilience, boost trade with emerging markets, and take actions that make trade sustainable. And as an Economist podcast listener, enjoy 30% off with the code PODCAST30. So sign up now at economist.com slash global dash trade dash week. 